Last summer, the chief executives of some of the largest businesses in the U.S. signed a commitment to redefine the purpose of the U.S. corporate. The new statement calls for stakeholder capitalism. In other words, that companies work for all their stakeholder groups equally, from customers to employees and the communities they serve. The statement challenges the key principle of corporate governance. Before this, shareholders had primacy, no longer. The Business Roundtable's members are CEOs of companies with more than 15 million employees and more than $7 trillion in annual revenues. Their influence on business and investor behavior around the world is huge, and their new statement on corporate purpose signals that attitude to ESG, the accepted abbreviation for environmental, social, and governance factors, have moved from the periphery to mainstream business and investment practice. But how exactly has the investment community responded to growing demand for ESG or responsible investing strategies, those that seek to have a positive impact on the world while also generating financial returns? And will investors always be financially rewarded by investing with their conscience? What is the state of ESG investing today? And where will it be next year? or in five years' time. I am Anna Pavlova, Professor of Finance at London Business School. I am also an Academic Director of the AQR Asset Management Institute. In this podcast, you will hear a wide range of perspectives from academics, including my London Business School colleagues, practitioners, and those working to grow the market for investment strategies that aim to have positive social and environmental impact in the world. These views were first aired at our recent Insight Summit, The Future of Investing, ESG and New Frontiers. Jeremy Grantham, a legendary investor, co-founder of GMO, and Nobel laureate Oliver Hart, Andrew E. Furrer, professor of economics at Harvard University, were some of the keynote speakers. Henri Servais, the Richard Brealey Professor of Corporate Governance and a Professor of Finance at London Business School, opened the event. Offering some of the latest academic research on ESG investing, he raised a flag of warning that in the future, investors should understand that impact strategies will not always be the highest performing. You look at the past data, there is clear evidence that you know, some ESG strategies would have outperformed, either focusing on employee well-being, focusing on sustainability, etc. There's also evidence that at least during some points in time, like during the financial crisis, ESG strategies also performed well. But when we're trying to see, okay, going forward, is that still going to be the case? Well, maybe the pendulum will actually flip to some extent. Because there's now so much money piled into these strategies that the stocks that are outside of the strategies become neglected stocks. Now, you know, I'm not making a moral statement as to whether it is good or bad to invest in these shares. That's something investors have to decide on their own. My statement is simply about what does this say about expected returns. So I think in the future, 
Uh, if you want to make money with these strategies, you have to look much more carefully for inefficiencies, look for second order effects like the food companies. You know, look at how do shocks uh, propagate in the system that investors may not have caught. I think you can try to look for ESG activism and try to do something about that. But finding companies that underinvest systematically in ENS uh, efforts is also going to become more difficult. And I do think that you know, maybe we, we will see things flip and that there is some room for neglected stock investing. Alex Edmonds, London Business School Professor of Finance and Academic Director of the Center for Corporate Governance, then took a more focused look at the G part of ESG. Why should investors care about corporate governance as part of their due diligence process? He said CEO pay structure was a critical component to determine the long-term value of a business. Many of us here, or perhaps all of us here, are all about business serving wider society rather than just shareholders. That's why we're at an ESG conference. But what this suggests is the best way to serve wider society is not necessarily to take from investors or take from the CEO and cut their pay and redistribute it, but actually to change the structure of pay. Because when you give the CEO long-term pay, then she has a slice of the pie. Therefore, she has incentives to grow the pie by treating her workers better. Because then when you have an engaged and a motivated and a well-trained workforce, then firm value in seven years is going to go up. And so that takes me to the final slide before I open the Q&A in terms of the implications for investors. So the first one is to highlight that corporate governance is not just for ESG investors. So over my 12 years as an academic, this has really changed. So previously, governance and ENS, they were seen as niche for just a couple of socially responsible funds. But this is critical. So it could be that an investor only cares about maximizing financial returns. But even if so, you should care about governance because this affects the likelihood of creating long-term value. And um, one of the biggest pieces of evidence against ESG investing is the idea that actually the average SI fund underperforms. But that's because, while they might have incorrect measures of corporate governance, something based on pie splitting like the pay ratio, rather than things like the horizon of pay. So this means that to the extent to which you want to choose on governance or actually change governance, some of these pie-growing ideas are, I think, more beneficial. And indeed, one some, some good developments we've seen recently is the Council of Institutional Investors in the US and the Investment Association in the UK recently came out with new pay policy guidelines, not so much about changing the quantum of pay, but changing the structure. And in particular, trying to ensure that the CEO continues to hold shares after she departs. So one example, it could be Paul Polman of Unilever, who's left but still has to hold 500% of his salary in shares. That gives him a horizon well beyond his tenure and means that they think long term, not just for the years that they're in office. And so this is of interest to you more, more generally. I've just written a book about it called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, about responsible business, but about how investors are not the enemy, but they are the solution to the problem, how actually investor returns can be achieved together with greater value to society. So... Professor Edmonds believes ESG investing can grow the pie for both investor and society. That's a belief also held by Karina Smith 
E. Henacho, Chief Corporate Governance Officer at one of the world's most influential investors, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. The fund, which manages more than $1 trillion, is invested in more than 9,000 companies. That's the equivalent of owning 1.4% of every listed company in the world. Here, she talks about how she sees ESG investing as a way to support the people of Norway. Reporting and analysis of ESG is a prime focus for her right now. Last year, we had more than 3,200 meetings. And probably half of these meetings, roughly, we discussed ESG issues. The basis for our dialogue, as I said, was our positions, expectations. But we also very much base it on how the information we get from the company and how the companies report. We analyze companies reporting in detail. And we've done this for more than uh, probably around 10 years now on some of the topics, and we have extended it. But what we see in general is that the reporting needs to be better. We're pushing very much better reporting from the companies. We're saying we need more detailed reporting, we need more numbers, we need outcome-based metrics. So what we've done this year, we have picked out companies where we think each of these areas where we have expectations may pose a risk. So uh, in certain areas, we have 500 companies, in certain areas, more than 1,000. And we have looked at how they report on various parameters that we believe is a picture for how they work on these issues. And altogether, you see here, we have 160,000 data points that really quite well inform us on at least what we think are important data points to, to say something about how the companies work with each of these issues. Managing and founding principal at AQR Capital Management, Cleve Asnes, has in the past been accused of being cynical about ESG. He argues that it's just mathematics. If you can take a constrained approach to investing, avoiding sin stocks, excluding certain companies, sectors, or even countries from a portfolio, then you are simply not using all investment opportunities out there. And so you must accept a lower rate of return. One way, eschewing, avoiding, running away from not refusing to own some companies that you think are doing bad, actually changes the world. It doesn't change the world because you're making a firm moral statement. That can be very important to you, and that's wonderful. Um, you can choose not to own something just because you will not participate in that, not for gain or loss, and that's fine. But if you actually are trying to change the world, you want people to do less of the bad stuff. How does that happen? Well, it's geek stuff. It's always geek stuff at the end. Does geek work here? It's boffin. It's boffin stuff. Um, you want the discount rate for projects at people doing the bad things to be higher. The way everybody on Earth is taught in business school and the way it actually does work in the corporate world to decide to do a new project is you try to make an estimate of the long-term cash flows and you discount back those cash flows to the present and you see if it's a net positive net present value. There's lots of room to do it different ways. I didn't just tell you exactly how to do it, 
But if you raise that discount rate, fewer projects will be done. Fewer projects will hit that hurdle. And if the bad people have a higher discount rate, that's good. Now here's the problem. One person's discount, this is where the title floor and ceiling come from, one person's discount rate is another's expected return. They're the same things. By not owning something, the way you force the discount rate up is somebody has to own them because they exist right now. The people willing to own them don't want more. They already have enough. To induce them to own more, expect return to go up. So in the pure restricted list sense, there should be a higher expected return to the evil companies. That's actually good news to you if you want to change the world, because it means they will do less evil. If you haven't changed their expected return, you've not changed whether they're going to pursue the exact same stuff. After that, the conversation moved to the role of the investment community in moving the dial on changing the world for the better. Dame Elizabeth Corley, senior advisor at Allianz Global Investors, is the first chair of the UK's new Impact Investing Institute, set up last year to get more people to use their saving and investments to help address the biggest social and environmental challenges. There is going to be a revolution of replacement and, and displacement technology as we try to move towards addressing challenges which are not simply helping people to reach their retirement, but helping them to reach a point where they can live in a world they want to live in. How do we do that? Well, we do it by working collectively on the things that we should not be charged for. One of the things we're really good at as an industry is finding points of differentiation and then pricing them. And that's not just as asset managers, it's as investment consultants, it's as advisors, it's as data providers, custodians, you name it. We have a value chain that is very long and we're in a relatively lower return world. So one of the things we have to do is raise the standard of the things that are going to be normal in the future and make them as cheap as possible and then enable people to develop the differentiation, the tools that will really make them distinguished from the competition and really contribute to outcomes. Interestingly, if you look at even at renewable energy, and, and um, when I was CEO, we, we did a huge build-out of infrastructure, of renewable energy and intangibles. I mean, really, really big build-out. And one of the things we realized is there are two ways you can invest in renewables or infrastructure. You can invest against a pure green, and the deeper green it gets, the better. Or you can think about the societal impact of that green investment. And remarkably, there are those institutions out there who are renewable energy companies with no commitment to human rights, no commitment to working collaboratively with their communities, no commitment to avoiding slave or child labor. They just want to go in and produce green energy. If they end up in a portfolio, you might get the green premium that you want, but absolutely you get the risk you may not have been aware of, which is you're only going for a single source. So the more we can think about how these particular factors work together and how we can get high quality data, a commonality of language, so that people can really start to differentiate between good, bad and indifferent, I think the better. A practitioner panel featured Megan Muldoon, who is managing director and head of sustainable investing at the world's largest investment management company, BlackRock. She kicked off a session that explored the everyday practicalities of taking a more ESG-focused approach. 
Sustainable investing for a long time has been a values-based exercise, um, but I think we're moving into a world where you have a value-based proposition that we can do a lot more with from an investment standpoint. When we talk about sustainable investing at BlackRock, we're talking about the use of environmental, social, and governance considerations alongside traditional financial considerations to drive long-term risk-adjusted return. That's a sentence I say probably 100 times a week. Um, but that's important, again, because when you're talking, we need to be clear what our, what our objectives are, because just like in regular investing, pure investing, there are different strategies for different objectives. In sustainable investing, there's also different strategies for different objectives. Gorben de Zwart, head of quantitative equities at APG Asset Management, said APG, the Dutch pension fund, had committed to doubling their assets linked to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. He said they have a goal to do this within five years. We have learned a lot of lessons by doing this. And the lesson that I started with five years ago, I could not imagine to sit here today, is also about culture. So I think to realize this shift to include responsible investing as one of the pillars of the investment process across all asset classes, requires a cultural shift in the company. It's part at this moment of all the interview process that we do when we hire a new portfolio manager. And we very clearly tell people, if you don't have a buy-in into responsible investing, you should not consider working for APG. At the same time, we have implemented the full framework with more than 20 external managers. And to give you some other numbers, there are the assets covered both internal and external is about 150 billion, and we own more than 4,000 different companies. So it was a major effort to get all the data feeds in place and to ensure that the external managers deliver according to the standards that we have and what we need. Finally, clear communication was important. To communicate with the stakeholders, and also to inform the clients on the progress. Are we done? No. We have several outstanding questions. So the first question that we almost get on a daily basis is, what's the impact on risk and return? So maybe the earlier presentation of today by Lasse Peterson will help to answer that question. But we have also been working on that question. And I must admit, it's a very challenging question and an appealing framework. Then the next question is, could you quantify, not only from a risk-return perspective, but could you also quantify the impact, the added value that this ESG focus will bring? What is the impact on the number of lives that you save when you come up with better medicines or any other impact of the policy? Final question, how do you deal with multiple dimensions? It's about reducing the carbon footprint. It's about focusing on the sustainable development goals. And it's about focusing on ESG, so it's a multi-dimensional problem. Kasper Lorentzen is Chief Investment Officer at PFA Group. He talked about the Danish appetite for ESG. I think it's fair to say that both institutions and, and Danish real money investors in general are ESG-aware investors, to use uh, Lasse's terminology, and also motivated when it comes to, to ESG. Uh, not over-motivated, because at one stage it might come with a cost. And for us, there's a fiduciary responsibility, and there's also a prudent person principle. So if the enthusiasm and motivation is, 
is too big, uh, we have to launch a new product in order for, for clients to, to choose that. But uh, ESG integration and motivation is, is definitely something that, that's been part of those organizations for, for several years. And maybe you could ask yourself, why is that? And I think that there are a number of reasons for that. Well, at least two. Uh, one is that it's, a, uh, it's licensed to operate. It's a way to protect your risk budget for the years to come. So from that point of view, it's, it's very rational. On top of that, there's good evidence with the data, MECI data in particular, that there are some return predictability in the ESG data. It's still early days, we need more data. But there seems to be return predictability on, on some of these factors. So I think that's, that's all the good reasons to embrace ESG as well. Nobel laureate Oliver Hart, who is Andrew E. Furrer, professor of economics at Harvard University, spoke next with a very different slant on corporate purpose and contrary to the one recently adopted by the U.S. Business Roundtable. It seems he believes shareholders should still be king and be the ones to determine how ethical a business is. I think this view, this sort of stakeholder view, attractive as it, uh, as it may seem, flies in the face uh, of another idea that uh, many of us believe in quite deeply, and that is freedom of contract. That is the idea that people should be able to write the contracts they want unless there are, there are third-party effects, what, it, what economists call externalities. And, you know, if you apply that idea in the, in the corporate domain, what that tells us is that People who, uh, when they set up companies, founders who set up companies and then take them public, should be able to design the post-IPO company in the way they wish. After all, they have every incentive to do so efficiently. So, you know, if you're a founder and you're taking your company public, you can choose to set it up as a worker cooperative or a consumer cooperative or a non-profit. That's your choice. I think there's a confusion about the meaning of fiduciary duty. Uh, CEOs sometimes justify unpopular actions on the grounds that fiduciary duty requires them to maximize profit. You hear this again and again. But our view is, yes, fiduciary duty as a concept makes sense. The board has a duty of loyalty to the shareholders, if the shareholders have the votes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, should maximize profit or market value. I've given you some examples where the shareholders may actually not want them to do that. I think fiduciary duty should mean doing what the shareholders want. And that means sometimes consulting them and seeing, do you want us to maximize profit or do you want us to do something else? Same argument applies to asset managers, those who run pension funds. Again, all often say, well, you know, whatever we think, we have to maximize return because we have a duty to the people who put our pension money with us. But suppose you went and asked them, maybe they would say, no, actually, we'd like you to uh, get out of South Africa, whatever it is, what the, the current version of that is. Okay, let me conclude. Um, the simple and appealing idea that there's a clear separation between the goals of companies on the one hand and the goals of individuals and government on the other, this is sort of the Friedman idea. We can leave social stuff to the government and to individuals, and companies can just keep their heads down and make money, okay? It's correct, that idea is correct, only if profit-making and damage-generating activities of companies are separable, which I've argued they often won't be, or if government perfectly internalize externalities through laws and regulations, which, like the last speaker, I don't think we can rely on.
In general, shareholder welfare, which is what I'm talk we talk about in this paper, what the shareholders actually want, and market value are not the same. Companies should consult their shareholders on what they want managers to do. The same idea should apply to asset managers who should consult their investors on, on what they want them to do. And you know, we think that in the uh, world of the internet and the World Wide Web, the cost of consulting people has gone down. So this is a more realistic idea uh, these days than it has been in the past. Fiona Reynolds is Chief Executive Officer at the PRI, the world's leading proponent of responsible investment. She took the stage with a strong warning for investors on the financial risks of ignoring ESG factors in their investment strategies and decision-making. Big policy changes are on the horizon to address climate change, she warned, and the financial markets are completely unprepared. We're basically saying that we believe that markets have not factored in the fact that there is going to be a lot of policy change that's going to happen in the climate space. And that the longer we leave these changes, the longer the policy changes take to come in, then the more forceful they're going to be. And that they're going to have significant impacts on financial markets and that financial markets need to start waking up to the changes that are coming their way. And we think that the changes will definitely come from governments because they're under a lot more pressure. Of course, we know that there's far many more extreme weather events and, you know, the once in a hundred year drought now happens every two years, etc. We're also seeing, of course, a lot more climate research coming out all the time. We have central banks coming out to talk about the risks to the financial markets of not considering climate issues. We've got civil society definitely around the world on the march, not just the youth, people of all ages on the march demanding more from governments. There's also obviously concerns about security, concerns about more climate refugees in the future and how countries will deal with these things. And a lot of stakeholders, a lot of our signatories, a lot of the pension funds are certainly demanding to understand more about how their investment managers are dealing with the issue of climate change. And we're starting to demand more of companies. How are they making the transition to a low-carbon economy? The final presentation of the day was from a legend in the global investment community and a well-known contrarian, Jeremy Grantham, co-founder GMO and trustee of the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. His assessment of the problems facing the planet was stark. The shift to ESG, he said, is probably too little, too late, to stem the tidal wave of destruction heading our way. Capitalism, in my opinion, does thousands of things better than other systems, notably state control, but it has no mechanism for dealing with externalities and particularly the tragedies of the commons. It doesn't compute in capitalism. The whole idea of capitalism is to get as many damn cows on that field as you can before the other guy. And uh, tragedies of the common air, water, and curiously, soil, in my opinion, pollution, waste, toxicities, and especially carbon dioxide and climate change. They need government regulation. I'm sorry, libertarians, there is no alternative. I'm very 
sympathetic to your cause, but not in this exceptional case. And they need government leadership, which we are not yet getting. But surely, as conditions deteriorate, we will behave better. People like you start pushing your bosses and using some career risk units it would be a great help. We all have to do everything we can to be responsible. He also pointed to research on the decline in fertility, leading to a declining population and the knock-on effect on GDP growth. By the 2050 period, we're going back in workforce so rapidly that we'll be lucky to have positive growth at all. So the world is going to have to get used to the fact that GDP is not always growing. No reason why you can't prosper, but there's every reason why politicians and economists are going to have the devil of a job retooling their growth at any price argument, which has dominated post-war economic theory and uh, post-war economic uh, policy. Some uncomfortable messages there to wrap up a thought-provoking day. Certainly, it seems that the ESG movement will only get bigger, spurred on by investor demand and increasing pressure from governments and regulators around the world. On a positive note, influential pension funds and large mainstream investment firms are beginning to take ESG seriously. Though it is not always clear whether the reasons are to accommodate the market mood leverage opportunity, or to mitigate financial risk caused by potentially disastrous climate change events in the future. What is definitely true is that billions of euros, pounds, and dollars are flowing into funds with specific ESG criteria. That seems likely to only increase and can only be positive for the planet. What is clear now is the urgent need to standardize language and communications around how funds, both ESG and conventional, integrate these factors. Without that clarity, from a legal and marketing point of view, categorizing and comparing strategies will continue to be challenging and create a gray area ripe for investment firms to overstate their green credentials and potentially mislead clients. The AQR Asset Management Institute promotes excellence in asset management. For more information on the topics explored in this podcast on ESG asset management at LBS, please go to london.edu.